Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read uh, chapter 8 verses 1 to 14 again just so it's clear in our minds and then I'll read on to the interpretation. So chapter 8 verse 1 again. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar a vision appeared to me Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, citadel, which is the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. And both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken and instead of it came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. One of them, out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It was great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offerings was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up, and he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, 
one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that have been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not uh, understand it. Now, I trust that you uh, will be with me in reading all of that again, just so our minds can concentrate um, on it. Now, what I'd like to do is begin tonight with something um, a little bit different from normal. I'm going to move so you can see the screen uh, behind me. I'm going to give us a short, a very short history of the ancient world. Okay, a very, very short history of the ancient world from the time of Daniel, which is the 6th century BC through to the 2nd century uh, BC. A very short history, I promise, 10 minutes max. <laughs> Your confidence is overwhelming. <laughs> now, now, I've really wrestled with this passage this week. It's hard to preach. I don't know how to preach it, but it's extraordinary what it says. Now, the events that I'll describe in this 10 minutes happen. Nobody disputes them. There is no question or doubt they are historically attested in so many sources, historical literature, and in artifacts. You go to the British Museum and you walk through the corridors of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. All of this is factual uh, history. Let me show you uh, the world or the area of the world now that we are talking about. What is the ancient world? Now, that slide helps us get our, our bearings. You'll see there the area we're talking about is uh, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Iran to the right, and Turkey to the north, the Middle East. That's the area that we know as the ancient uh, world. Now, back to Daniel's time. Let's start with the Babylonian Empire. You'll see where Babylon is across to the right. And now you can locate that region, the Babylonian Empire, where it is in the world uh, today. And uh, I've highlighted on the map the location of Judah and Jerusalem called in this vision, the beautiful land, the beautiful land. And you see where Judah and Jerusalem is right in the middle of the Babylonian empire. Now the conquerors of Babylon, and we've seen that in Daniel, the conquerors of Babylon were the Medo-Persians. And this is the Medo-Persian empire from 539 to 333 BC. Now we are going fast. At the time of the fall of Babylon, now we've seen, I'm not going to go to Daniel as my proof text, although we have seen this. We don't need to go to Daniel. All of this is attested in uh, historical sources. At the time of the fall of Babylon, Cyrus the Great was the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius the Mede was the prominent ruler in Cyrus's empire and the person who was charged to besiege and take Babylon in 539 BC. We know that. Shortly after that, Cyrus, the Persian, decreed that God's people, the Jewish people, could go back from exile 
to return to Jerusalem and uh, Judah. In time, though, the Medo-Persian Empire fell to the Greek Empire, the Greek Empire from 333 to 63 BC. Now, this may be the bit of the ancient world that you are familiar with because of one man that you may well have heard of at school, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was bar none, the most successful military strategist in the history of the world. And he did it all in his 20s. He masterminded a huge program of military context that made him ruler of a vast empire that extended from Greece to India. You see, uh, you see, go back to the previous slide, Naomi, thank you. You see how he expanded the massive Medo-Persian empire to his own Greek empire, made it far uh, bigger. Back to Alexander. Now, the decisive battle in the fall of the Babylonian empire, uh, to, rather the Medo-Persian empire to Greece, was the battle of Issus, in 333 BC, in which Alexander defeated the armies of Darius III. Ten years later, 323 BC, Alexander died at the age of 32. And the picture on the right is a sculpture of the dying Alexander. He died significantly in Nebuchadnezzar's palace in Babylon. Now, when Alexander died, he had no clear successor. And years of struggle ensued between his four generals, whom he had appointed as satraps or rulers of regions of his vast empire. Now, this is the kind of material you would study in the history of the ancient world. Yeah, it's just historical data. The names of the four generals are, and you can look them up on uh, Google later. I don't imagine any of you will, but you could, because I have all week. And you will see copious amounts of data about Cassander, Antigonus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Now, we are on the brink tonight of Russia invading Ukraine. This is exactly what this is, just all these centuries ago. It's exactly the same. It's big news. The four generals of Alexander, Cassander, Antigonus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. They are collectively referred to as the Diadochi, or the successors of Alexander the Great. There's one more, a man called Lysimachus, who was Alexander's personal uh, bodyguard. And uh, go back a slide, Naomi. You're going too fast. You're going faster than me. Okay, we're doing 20, two centuries a minute. See the fellow at the bottom, Lysimachus, he was the bodyguard of Alexander and he assumed one of the region. But effectively the successors were the four generals called the, um, the Diadochi. And the next slide that you saw uh, just a side of are where their kingdoms that they ruled were split up. Now, that's the whole Greek empire, but it's now split into four uh, kingdoms. Now, none of them were able to unite the empire like Alexander had, and so different kingdoms developed under their control. Two of these kingdoms, two of the four kingdoms became dominant, those of Ptolemy and Seleucus. Now, Ptolemy, uh, you'll see the full title on the slide, uh, reigned from 323 to 285 BC and founded the Ptolemaic Kingdom, also known as the Kingdom of the South. Now, if you lived then, the Ptolemaic Kingdom would be a little bit like China, It'd be a big deal. You'd know about it, be on the news every night. 
Now, yesterday, uh, I was working on the sermon in the museum. I thought that might help me. The danger of being in a museum is that you start to look around. Now, our National Museum in Scotland does not hold any significant collections from the ancient world. You need to go to the British Museum or museums in Berlin or Byzantium or whatever. The only place I thought that there might be some reference or artifact to this period of history was in the Egyptian room. And shall I tell you what I found? You see on the slide. Now, you can't see that. Um, I photographed it. Let me read it for you. These three little coins on the top, 25, 26, and 27. The first coin has the inscription of Alexander the Great. The year of his death, it was franked. The second coin, number 26, is a coin that commemorates his general Ptolemy I. The third coin is stamped with the date that Ptolemy became king of his empire. Now, that might not do anything for you, but it brought it alive to me yesterday. There it is in our museum, just down the road. Now, Ptolemy and the, the, the Ptolemaic Empire was one of the kingdoms that dominated. The other was Seleucus. You'll see him there. And Seleucus reigned from 306 to 281 BC and founded the Seleucid Kingdom, also known as the Kingdom of the North. And, and Judah and Jerusalem were kind of stuck between these two kingdoms, the Ptolemy and the Seleucid uh, Kingdoms. And through successive kings, the Seleucid dynasty grew increasingly dominant. And in terms of the persecution of God's people in history, in terms of the persecution of the Jews, one Seleucid king is infamous. And that's him. His name is Antiochus IV, who reigned from 175 to 164 uh, BC. You can see on the, the slide there how the Seleucid kingdom and the Ptolemaic kingdom had become dominant. You can see on the top left of the slide how Rome is the next superpower that's coming to bear in the ancient world. Antiochus IV took for himself another name. He called himself Epiphanes, which means I am the God-man. Now there he is. He is one of the most evil people in history in terms of his persecution of God and his people. And you can't tell much from a stone cast, but you can from that. It's haunting, it's... What did he do? Well, in order to consolidate his power, he drove forward his vision for what he called Hellenization, the imposition of Hellenistic Greek culture. And part of that was one religion for all. One religion for all. Antiochus would not tolerate what he regarded as the narrow-minded fundamentalism of Judaism's exclusive devotion to one God. Now, it's not surprising that back then, many, many Jews were persuaded and embraced his liberal brand of Judaism. They brought freedom and acceptance in the culture and the political arena. But many refused to comply and determined to live faithfully as God's people. 
And on the way back from one of his campaigns in Egypt, he invaded Jerusalem and deliberately desecrated the Jewish temple by entering the holy place, removing the golden altar where the high priest prayed and the golden lampstands together with the precious uh, gold and silver goblets, a bit like Nebuchadnezzar had done all these years before. Two years later, 168 BC, Antiochus sent a large force to Jerusalem and slaughtered 80,000 men, women, and children, a high percentage of them children. He then issued an edict forbidding sacrifices, feast days, forbidding people to follow the Jewish law, changing the Jewish calendar, disobedience punishable by death. And this frenzied anti-God madness reached its height on the 25th day of the month Kislev, which is our December, on the 25th of December in the year 167 BC, in a final act of supreme blasphemy, Antiochus had the Jewish temple rededicated to the Greek Olympian god Zeus and slaughtered pigs at the altar of God. That's pretty bad stuff. And in the ancient world, just before the coming of Christ, that was a massive, massive deal for the people of God, nearly extinguished them. Antiochus, though, had failed to reckon on, and history says this, I'm still not going to the book of Daniel, Antiochus had failed to reckon on the depth of anger this provoked. And this man, Judas Maccabeus, led something called the Maccabean Revolt and liberated the temple, liberated uh, Jerusalem from Antiochus. And the temple was rededicated, celebrated by the Jews in the festival of Hanukkah every year. Hanukkah means dedication. And Antiochus died the year the temple was rededicated. History records Antiochus had failed to reckon on the depth of his anger. Whose anger? God's anger in the end. Now, that's uh, what happened. Thank you, Naomi. Um, and, and I've never given a 10 minute, that was not longer than 10 minutes by much. <laughs> Nobody in the world would dispute a word of that. Nobody would dispute the facts that I've just shared. They are attested to everywhere in historical documents and artifacts. There are even some coins with the heads of these people stamped on them in our museum down in Chambers Street. Now, with that in our minds, factual history, let's turn to the prophecy of Daniel in chapter 8. And in many ways tonight, I just want to inspire you to your own study of it, and I can give you copious amounts of further material if you want. The prophetic material in Daniel, so we're in chapter 8, chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, there are four visions. You'll see that on the back of the service sheet. Four visions. Chapter 7 is the first, chapter 8 is the second, chapter 9, the third, chapters 10 to 12, one vision. Now these four visions are divided between one, Big picture visions. So the kind of big picture that takes in all the seats going right to the back of the hall. And the other visions are visions that focus in on rows two and three. 
and then row three, and then one person in row three. That's the nature of these visions, big picture and detailed. Big picture visions take a wide-angled lens of the whole of human history. Other visions take a zoom lens to focus on a particular period in the future. Daniel 7, as we looked at last week and the week before, is a big picture vision. Daniel 7 takes a wide-angled lens to survey the future. It covers the period from the Babylonian Empire to the new creation. It covers the period from Daniel's day to forever. And the heart of that vision, as we saw last week, was one like a son of man, the coronation of the king of God's everlasting kingdom, the Lord Jesus. The message of that first big picture vision, and it's in Aramaic, it's a message to the whole world, is that God reigns over all of history. He is sovereign over all empires, kingdoms, kings, peoples, evidenced supremely in his establishing of an eternal and universal kingdom under the rule of his all-powerful king. Now, by contrast, the vision in Daniel 8 takes a zoom lens to focus in on a particular period in the future, on the Greek kingdom and this Seleucid king Antiochus IV, who reigned from 175 to 164. Now, I'll come back to that. A comment on the date and setting of the vision. We are told when Daniel received it, chapter 8, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. The first there is the vision in chapter 7. Now, the third year of Belshazzar is 550 BC. So Daniel received this vision that we read in chapter 8, and we read it twice, so you really know what it says. Daniel received that vision in 550 BC, so he claims. Way, way before any of the events that we looked at in the history of the ancient world. Now, who was uh, Belshazzar? He ruled the empire as co-regent with his father Nabonidas, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And Belshazzar's rule was the bleakest time for God's people. Now, why was Daniel so appalled at this vision? At one of the bleakest times for God's people in history, Daniel received an even bleaker vision. Extraordinary. Daniel was disregarded by Belshazzar until he was summoned to interpret the writing on the wall. And that was the night Belshazzar died, as we know. Um, So Daniel received this vision at the beginning of Belshazzar's reign, kind of two-thirds of the way through the exile. Now let's stop here and pause. This vision, Daniel says, was received in the sixth century. The book of Daniel was written, composed, put together in the sixth century BC. It says extraordinary things about the future. We saw it in chapter 7. General things about the future and the specific vision of the Son of Man, Jesus. And it says in chapters 8 and 11, we've read chapter 8 tonight, specific things about events in the future. Now what do you do with that? If you do not believe that God can inspire his word and reveal and prophesy the future. 
if you do not believe in a supernatural, sovereign God, you will devote all your energies to showing and proving that this book was not written when it claims to have been written, but written after the events it prophesies. And if you can prove that, then the whole of the fabric that we in this room base our faith on is pulled out. But if you can't show that, then you've got to come to terms with the fact that what you are reading here takes you into the mind of God who knows the future, who controls the future, and who revealed the future here in a striking, striking way to make us sit up and notice and to be appalled at his majesty and his power and his sovereignty. Now, if you lined up books along this stage from left to right about the dating of the book of Daniel, you might run out of space. But the sheer weight of evidence after years and years of people trying to debunk the historicity of the book of Daniel is that every argument has crumbled. So let me just, I, I can talk to you at length afterwards, late into the night. See, it matters why some people give their attention and life to studying theology in the academy and university against this historical weight of criticism. For years and years and years, people argued that the descriptions in the book of Daniel were inaccurate because there was no such person as Darius. Darius, who uh, is the conqueror of Babylon in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Never recorded in history. Called himself the son of Nebuchadnezzar in the book, but that was Nabonidus. That was the trump card. Discredit the details, therefore it couldn't have been written until centuries later, when everyone had forgotten. Until someone dug up something called an Abonidas cylinder. And when you read that cylinder with its cuciform writing, it talks about how I, Nabonidas, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, gave the rule of Babylon to my son, Belshazzar, who became my co-regent. And all of a sudden, all that weight of scholarship crumbled to nothing. The other major, major source of evidence is Qumran, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the first century BC. Massive discovery. And these scrolls, these scrolls told scholars that by the first century BC, the book of Daniel had been canonized in the Old Testament scriptures. And there is no way, if Daniel had been written, even in the middle of the second century or towards the end of the second century, it would ever have been canonized as quickly as that. So another whole big shelf of scholarship falls. And so we're left with this enormous challenge or enormous encouragement that the book of Daniel was written down in the 6th century BC. 
And God did say these things. And God did give Daniel these visions. Now, what do we learn from this vision? And they're just simple headings, but they are profound truths. What do we learn from this vision about God? Well, let's just look at text again and the interpretation. So, follow with me, verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. The ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, the ram with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. There's the interpretation. We're not left searching in the dark. These are the kings of Media and Persian. The ram with the two horns, a dual kingdom. And the goat... Daniel is told by Gabriel the angel is the king of Greece and the great horn between his eyes is the first king and the first king of Greece the Greek kingdom is Alexander the Great verse 22 as for the horn that was broken the horn that is the first king of Greece in place of which four other horns arose four kingdoms shall arise from these horns but not with his power And you open up any history book. And if you were to, if you were to, to have a children's, you remember Ladybird books? No. Some of you do. Ladybird books, short books. You just hit the nail on the head in them. If you were writing a Ladybird book about some famous person or some famous event in history, what would make it into the Ladybird book about the kingdom of Greece was Alexander. died and gave his power to four generals whose kingdoms were divided. That's the big picture stuff. And it's that which is written in Daniel 8. Oh, but is it true? Is it true? Because that's quite general. Well, look how the, the vision goes on. At verses 9 to 14, it talks about this little horn. And all this stuff about destructing the burnt offerings and the sacrifice and and uh, blaspheming and, and, and changing the times and the laws. What's all that about? And the interpretation is in verses 23 to 26. This man of great cunning who will persecute the saints. And you go forward in history. Through one of the dynasties, through the Seleucid dynasty, comes a Seleucid king Antiochus, and what does he do? He desecrates the sanctuary. He changes the set times and the laws. He changes the calendar. He bans the law, bans the feast days. He desecrates the temple. All of it written in Daniel chapter 8. In detail, there is no prophecy like Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 in Scripture. 
Nothing that gives detail like this. It's a rare, rare revelation from God. And what does it tell us about God? And this, I think, is frightening. Daniel uses the word appalling. That God knows the future. And there is not a soul on earth who does. God knows the future. Moreover, God determines the future. Or he controls the future. Or he is sovereign over the future. And something that has struck me really powerfully is that God is knowledgeable and determinative of the detail of the future as well as the big picture. And the principles apply to any time. God knows exactly what is happening in our country, in our land, in the West, in the East. He knows what will happen in 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. And what's that meant to do to us? It's meant to expand our vision, our conception of God and his glory and his majesty. What do we learn from this vision? Secondly, about the revealed word of God. So the Bible in our hands. Well, that it is true. Or uh, as one writer puts it, that the Bible in our hands is true truth. True truth means not just simply facts that are true, but the interpretation of the facts. It's not just history, but it's the divine interpretation, the divine counsel, the divine control of history. What else do we learn about the Word of God? It is prophetic. It tells us what will happen. It tells us the end of history. It tells us supremely in the New Testament that the Lord Jesus is coming back. How do we know he is coming back? Well, read Daniel 8. Daniel 7. Daniel 11. God says these things will come to pass, and they did. And go home tonight and think of the most precious promises in your heart, in the Word of God. And these promises, because they are God's promises, will be fulfilled. You cannot trust that. You cannot know that for anything else ever written down by a human hand. Everything God says in His Word is true. It is prophetic. It will be fulfilled. And that is why the heart of our life and pulse and bloodstream and charmers is the proclamation of the Word of God. Because on Sundays and in small groups, true truth is expounded. A prophetic word from God is proclaimed. And promise after promise after promise is shared that cannot but come true.
Lastly, what do we learn from this vision about the persecution of God's people? Well, that it is a pattern through history. It goes on and on. And you can point to specific periods. My sober day yesterday in the museum continued in the evening as I watched some videos on YouTube about North Korea and the Christians in the education camps and so on and so on and so on and so forth. It's shocking. It's terrible. It's terrible for them. But it's worse for the persecutor in the end. You think of that evil face. You can even see it in the stone statue. People will say, well, he's dead. But he will be raised to eternal hell. And so will all who persecute God and his people. Now, you always uh, say that you should preach the response of a vision as the application. So I'm not sure, I was saying to Scott earlier, I'm not sure how many songs capture being appalled or being ill. There are some little shafts of light in this vision like the persecution will not go on any longer than God determines. There are shafts of light because the vision speaks of a time of the end. There's an angel of light, Gabriel says to Daniel, up you get, Daniel, up you get. By chapter 10 and 11, he touches him on the shoulder. But the overwhelming emotion or affection that we take from this vision is to be appalled. And I think appalled at the extraordinary power and sovereignty of God. And it's right for us, I think, to be. Yes, God is our Father, but He is extraordinary and majestic, and He knows the future. He knows everything, everything that will happen until His Son returns. And as your mind is appalled, it may be that the Holy Spirit impresses on your heart comfort. You know Him, and He knows that. And it is appalling. It is appalling to consider what human beings do to God's people because they hate God so much. And that should burden us. We should be watching videos of North Korea so we can pray. Let's do that now. Lord Jesus, this is a strange part of the Bible, a strange sermon as we try to get our heads around this extraordinary stuff. 
And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our minds and hearts in the appropriate way. And that we will embrace it. That we will learn from it. That we will trust you more. That we will never doubt your word. That we will proclaim it with all our energies because it is true and prophetic and its promises will be fulfilled. And Lord, when your people are persecuted in terrible ways, in places like North Korea, Lord, have mercy on them. And have mercy on those who persecute them. For their destiny, their eternity is too awful to imagine. Lord, thank you that through the gospel of the Lord Jesus, None of that changes a vision of this nature. After all, this vision in chapter 8 follows the vision of the Son of Man in chapter 7. But to walk through this earth and to walk through this world having Jesus as our King is all of the difference. And so we pray now that as we stand and sing to the Lord Jesus, King of Kings and Majesty, you would encourage and strengthen us. And if we are appalled at what we have seen, reassure us that if we know Jesus, we have everything that we will ever need. And we pray in his name and for his sake.